Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, should first-time buyers be scared of new builds? Plus, will the Catholic Church come to the defence of the word mother? And finally, why does it take so long to understand Japanese culture, even for the Japanese? First up, with the Tories losing a by-election in Cheshire and Amersham, and with planning and new build housing being a priority issue for many voters, our cover story this week looks at the shadowy cabal of property developers who dominate the market. To discuss, I'm joined by John Myers from the organisation Yes in My Backyard and Vicky Spratt, housing correspondent of the I newspaper and author of the upcoming book Tenants. Vicky, our lead article in this week's Spectator begins with the tale of a young couple who've had problem after problem with their new build home. And later on in the piece, they reveal that they they say they would never buy a new build home again. You obviously know a lot about the housing market. What, what would, what's your advice to young people when it comes to new builds? Well, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because a lot of affordable housing is newly built. A lot of the homes that are available as shared ownership, although not all, and also through the government's help to buy scheme, are new builds. And we know that there is a huge problem with quality amongst new build homes. So I suppose very important that I as a journalist don't give advice per se, but if I were going to give anyone any pointers, I would say that they really need to make sure they've got the best conveyancing solicitor they could possibly have and keep an eye on that developer's history in terms of quality and complaints. And you can look them up on Trustpilot. There are lots of Facebook groups. But you could do all of that and still encounter problems. And I think that's the issue here. And the New Homes Quality Board are supposed to be overseeing all of this moving forward. But as I wrote not too long ago, there are some issues with that because you've got members of some of the biggest developers sitting on the board. So I don't really know how we tackle this kind of at a top level and make sure that the new homes, which you know, is mostly how we're delivering affordable housing, are up to scratch. It's a huge issue. John, the Tories have just suffered a by-election defeat in Chesham and Amersham, and, and it's thought mainly to have been due to what probably would be called not-in-my-backyard voters. You represent a group called YIMBY, Yes in My Backyard Voters. Can you tell us about that and about the campaign that you're, that you're leading? Absolutely. So it started out internationally in the United States and in Scandinavia, Yes in My Backyard being the goal of providing a group of people who were a positive voice for housing, a positive voice for change, not necessarily in an adversarial way, but to advocate that, look, if we don't build homes, the housing crisis is going to continue to get worse. And so we should be building high quality homes in the right places. And the, that those campaigns have had huge successes in Scandinavia, successes in various states across the US, including especially California, where the movement's just enormous. And so about four years Years ago, a group of us decided we should start that here, and it's it's snowballed. Um, we've had various successes so far. We managed to get one change into policy nationally in in 2018, and the government's interested in one of the other things we're pushing. But the we, we you know we've got a huge range of young people who are incredibly dissatisfied with the, op- the housing options that they're confronted with, which are frankly much worse than the options for previous generations. And there's no need for that. And Vicky, why are the options so? much worse. I mean, why is it that we've suddenly entered into an era of terrible building quality? I and mean, in Liam's piece, he he compares this sort of group of large property developers to a 
almost a cartel I mean is that is that part of the problem that we've kind of we haven't actually got a free market situation here when it comes to building I think it's a little bit more complicated than that and I I think it's it's not just about supply which obviously is is the main focus of this article do we have a housing shortage in Britain Yes and no. I think one of the problems with the housing crisis is that it's being talked about as though there is one housing crisis and that it's completely homogenous. I think it's regional and depending on where you are in the country, your experience of what we call housing stress will, will be different. So there are some places where there are lots of homes and they're quite affordable, but there are no jobs. Take the example of somewhere like Grimsby. Actually, lots and lots of homes in the private rented sector and they're quite affordable. They're not very good quality, but they are affordable. But there aren't enough jobs for people in Grimsby. So that is not an area where we have a housing shortage. In the southeast, we have a huge shortage of affordable housing. There's lots of housing, it's just not affordable. And that's a really big issue because it puts pressure on the private rental sector, which drives prices up. But obviously, because London has become this kind of economic vortex, which has been sucking the rest of the country into it, lots of people want to live in London in the southeast. So prices are high because demand is high. So I think there are several things here. Like, probably we need some form of rent control, like the rent pressure zones that they have in Scotland that can be applied locally to make sure that people can afford to live where they need to live. But also, I think building truly affordable homes where they are needed and then beyond that thinking about how we reorient our economy so that well maybe that's happening naturally because of the pandemic we'll see people don't necessarily have to live concentrated in areas of high demand but because the focus politically in recent years has been on building new homes to increase supply and solve the housing crisis this is the mantra we've heard repeated by particularly conservative politicians. Developers now do have a lot of power. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, because they're primarily the people delivering affordable housing through help to buy and shared ownership, government endorsed schemes, they kind of have a monopoly on, on delivering those homes. And they're not always good quality. They're not always actually affordable. And a lot of them, although that has been reformed more recently, are leasehold, which brings with it its own set of problems. So, yeah, I, I do think they have too much power. And we know how much money they donate to the Conservative Party. So all you have to do is look at those records to know how much power they have. John, I suppose one of the other problems with these house, these new build houses is that they're often not particularly attractive. And this is a point that Jessica Douglas Home makes in another piece in this week's issue. And I suppose that's one of the concerns that NIMBYs have is that they maybe want more housing, but they don't necessarily want sort of ugly housing built near them. How do you, how do you go about convincing NIMBYs to become YIMBYs? Well, I, mean, I actually don't like using the word NIMBY. We have a sort of no NIMBY left behind policy. We believe that pretty much nearly everyone can become a YIMBY if you're proposing the right kind of solutions and the right kind of housing. And it's high quality and it's it's well designed. It's, it's beautiful if, they, if that's what they want. And so to me, it's all about bringing people together. And one of the things that we've been pushing is giving people more of a, over a say on what the housing looks like. So, you know, the government itself is pushing for design codes and the great estates in London, for example, in Bloomsbury, were constructed with very strict design codes often that the estate itself would have laid down to ensure that you didn't have cowboy builders just building 
building anything they liked and so that's why in many cases you you get this beautiful consistency of design and hopefully that's a way forward which will ensure a higher quality both in the way that they look um, in the way that they relate to where they are and in in some of the internal aspects of quality that that Vicky's so eloquently set out which are just completely unsatisfactory for many many buyers today so giving giving local people a way to say yes, a way that they can have the confidence to say, look, these are going to be good homes that are going to make our place better is, we think, one of the best and most productive ways forward. Just finally, Vicky Liam says in his piece that Boris Johnson seems convinced that solving the UK's chronic housing shortage is the way to shore up support for the Conservative Party. Do you think that is the case? It certainly seems to be the case, doesn't it? We know that people who own homes are more likely to vote Conservative. There's a brilliant academic at Oxford called Ben Ansell who's done lots of research on this, looking at voting data at a local ward level in general elections and also in the EU referendum. And that idea is certainly borne out in the data. But I wonder if there are other ways to fix the housing market that don't just look at increasing home ownership and perhaps we need to accept that some people will not be able to afford to buy and we do need more social housing we need to look at sorting out regulating the private rented sector and shouldn't what is now acknowledged by the UN as a human right the right to housing uh, be something we put above party politics I think probably yes thank you John and Vicky next up Last week, St Paul's Girls' School removed the term head girl in order to be more inclusive. But what about when gender language plays an important role in tradition and even religion? Mary Wakefield writes in this week's Spectator that she wants her church to stand up for the word mother, given how integral the concept of motherhood is to the church. She joins me now, along with the theologian Theo Hobson and former editor of The Tablet and author of Martyrdom, Why Martyrs Still Matter, Catherine Pepinster. Mary, in this week's issue, you ask, why won't the Catholic Church stand up for mothers? Why do you think it's important for the Catholic Church to speak out about the term mother? I think, you know, the Catholic Church has a pretty sort of strong position on this. So when all these news stories appeared that the saying, you know, gender neutral language would be preferred in these various documents, I've been waiting for the church to tweet or say, or various bishops to say, um, no, it's important that we use the word mother. There's nothing offensive about gendered language, even that, you know, biological sex is a reality and women give birth and my really what my column was pointing out was just there's been this sort of silence as far as I can see from the church on this whereas I would expect given the whole setup of the catholic church them to be you know have a heartfelt response in defense of the idea of motherhood and the reality of women giving birth. Catherine is this something that you've noticed that the catholic church is almost sort of deliberately avoiding the topic of gendered language? Well I think there's something slightly deeper going on here, which is I think the Catholic Church's hierarchy has become increasingly nervous in recent years about putting its head over the parapet over a lot of issues that have anything to do with sex, sexuality, gender, etc. And I think a lot of this is to do with the fact they realise that they have really had their reputation massively damaged by the, the sex abuse scandals. And I think a lot of people feel that their moral authority is gone and they don't want to hear from them. I had a look earlier and and some years ago, well over 10 years ago, when there was first discussion about uh, this country changing the law 
on transsexuals, the Catholic Church did put its head over the parapet and uh, some of their bishops were quite vociferous about it and, and were very opposed to the idea that you can change your gender. So there's been a change in the way they, they deal with things. They get very nervous about certain topics now. But I also think that the Catholic Church is quite f- fluid itself about issues of gender. I mean, this is a church which has an all-male priesthood, yet it likes calling itself Holy Mother Church, and it likes to talk about itself as the Bride of Christ. So it's an area where there's a lot to debate. There's a difference between gender and biological sex here, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. You know, we be- at least I believe in a kind of, you know, a, a non-binary sky fairy, so I can hardly talk about, you know, gender being very precise. But there's a, a scientific reality of biological sex and, you know, procreation and children that it becomes a little weird if the church doesn't doesn't sort of stand up for. You know, as far as I understand it, which is not very much, the whole thing about kind of critical theory is that, you know, the reality is constructed and you can choose your own reality. That seems to me fundamentally anti-Christian. It, you know, reality isn't just what we decide what it's going to be. Um, there's an objective truth such that we seek to find it. Yes, that's true. But as I say, I think there are other reasons why they might be keeping well hidden at the moment. Yeah. Can I su- suggest something that the church is actually quite sensible to keep out this sort of thing and that it would be counterproductive if they did get too involved in it? Because I think it's, it is an important debate that you know, the culture in general needs to sort out and there needs to be a secular consensus on what sex is and what biological sex is. And I basically agree with Mary and probably Catherine that, you know, biological sex should be defended and so on. But if it becomes too much a religious culture war, then that's not helpful because a lot of people on the fence would go, oh, look, I'm probably against what they're saying because they're bishops and theologians and so on. And there, as as uh, Catherine said, you know, there's all this history of abuse and, and gender fixed roles and so on. And so a lot of people would go... I'm not so sympathetic, maybe, to traditional biological sex. The, Theo, the, the world wouldn't be flat just because there was a consensus it was flat. I mean, it's not about a consensus. Biological reality is about the facts. Well, everything in sort of culture, you know, we, we hope there's agreement and consensus, don't we? But And on the point of abuse in the Catholic Church... To me, you know, again, biological reality is important here because, you know, the fact is it's men, biological men, who commit most of the sex abuse. I'm sure that's true if you look at prisons or whatever. So, again, the the reality of biological sex is important here in in, in looking at why and how children are abused in any institution because it is largely, you know, men. I agree with that, but but I think there's a danger of overreacting, of of the church going into sort of a reactionary position, which you slightly do in your article of motherhood is the essence of... Christianity uh, almost uh, suggesting and 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 I think there's a danger of the church using culture wars just to retrench and to say let's uphold you know anything that feels traditional and as Catherine says the church is quite mixed and it has promoted gender fluidity in certain ways if you look at the New Testament you know there's the stuff about neither male nor female there's the fact that Jesus isn't very macho you know all this sort of thing well I don't think you have to be macho to be a man I mean I don't think biological sex as a reality encompasses all manner of different spectrums of behavior sure but we're Christians are open to challenging traditional gender roles uh, let's say sure of course in the Catholic Church it can be very specific about gender, if you think this is an all-male priesthood, they're keeping women out of it. And they're also not very keen on 
priest who might change sex. I know of at least one person who studied at the English College in Rome, who, who obviously was a man when he was studying there and, and eventually changed sex, but they would not have let him stay in the priesthood as a woman because they would have said uh, being male is part of the essence of priesthood. So they've, they've got a bit to lose here if they get, if they get a bit too tolerant. Could a woman who changed sex to a man, would they be... I don't think they would either, no. I wouldn't so have So they're quite so. specific in these areas. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have thought a biological man, i.e. a trans woman, might be more acceptable in some ways. But that's not... Yeah, I'm way <laughs> above, above my doctrinal... Catherine, just to, just to finish on, Mary mentions in her column Joe Biden. I mean, how significant do you think it is that we now have a US president who is Catholic and is also has talked about gender-inclusive language and, and, and is obviously quite open to these ideas. How, how important do you think that is? I'm not sure how important it is that Biden is using that kind of language. What I do think is interesting with Biden in, in the White House is that this is a man who appears to have been very influenced by some Catholic theology on issues such as justice. He's he's known to be really interested in Catholic social teaching. And I think we might see some of that coming through in what he does in politics. But of course, then we get into the, the whole controversy in the United States about this Catholic president and his, his policies on abortion, which we haven't got time to talk about here, but that's going to become such a massive row, as you know, in the United States. Is his policy just that, you know, he is against it, but he's for the right to choose? He's, it, he says he's, he's personally opposed to it, but he's in favour of choice for women. But obviously it, coming to play here is political pragmatism, isn't it? Because he's a Democrat. Yeah, I, th- I think it's pretty clear that he, he sort of kowtowed to his uh, liberal lobby by allowing this gender-inclusive language, and it's surely not his real motive or impulse. And, and, and I think that's politics, really. But it is quite surprising, and it's worth... It's worth keeping an eye on and being a bit wary of that, you know, even the White House has sort of kowtowed to this lobby, trying to police language in this way. And there are little hints of it. It's hard hard to tell how deep, how wide this goes, because obviously journalism boosts it up and gets all excited about tiny things. But on the other hand, there are some institutions that have timidly kowtowed to to this sort of thing. So it's it's worth keeping an eye on, definitely. And just finally, Mary, you point out in your piece that Pope Francis has said that gender theory has a what he calls dangerous cultural aim of erasing all distinctions between men and women. I mean, is he is he defending mothers in that in that case? Well, I think absolutely he is. I think everything he's written has been, and as well as you know the other Pope, Pope Benedict, they've both been. I've made a lot of sense um, on the subject. It's really just that the English bishops haven't really spoken up, and to me, it feels like a gap. Mary, Catherine, and Theo, thank you very much. And finally, Japan. It's on the top of many people's dream holiday destinations, but what is it like to actually live there? According to Philip Patrick in this week's Spectator, it can take some getting used to, but he says he's found the secret to it. He joins me now, along with the comedian and host of the podcast Japan by River Cruise, Ollie Horn. Philip and Ollie, thank you very much for joining. Philip, in your article for this week's Spectator, you write about trying to understand Japanese culture and, and you refer to A.A. Gill's description of Tokyo as a vast open-air lunatic asylum. Is that your impression of Tokyo too? Uh, I disagree with A.A. Gill, I have to say. Although I should also say I, I quite enjoyed his article and I enjoyed his writing on Japan. But um, I understand why he, he felt that way about Japan because you're surrounded by so many strange 
and difficult to understand things. But my point in the article really was that um, it takes time. You just have to spend a long time in Japan. And in order to understand these seemingly incomprehensible, quirky things, you often have to do a kind of mental squint and a logic kind of presents itself over time. So I was kind of taking issue with A.A. Gill. And what particular things have you found sort of most eccentric about Japanese culture? Well, I mentioned in the article Japanese English, which is truly bizarre. And uh, I used to work near, near a hotel called the Day Nice Hotel. It had the, the words Day Nice Hotel mounted on, on letters above the hotel. And it just struck me as bizarre. Why didn't they speak to one native speaker who could have told them that, you know, the word order was a bit wonky there. But there's also a drink in Japan. There's a soft drink called Pokari Sweat. And, you know, you can hardly think of a worse name for a soft drink, you know, and yet it's very, very successful. Yeah, so that struck me when I first came here. And it did just seem, it seemed like sloppy translation at first. But the more I thought about it and read about it, it's possibly genius because if you do come across something like Pokari Sweat or Soup for Sluts is another one that I've never been able to forget. It, it does hit home and it has an impact. So I think there is a kind of underlying quirky logic to a lot of strange things in Japan, but it does take a long time for you to realise that and discern these things. Ollie, you've spent time in Japan working as a comedian. Have you found it an eccentric place in many ways? Yes, and I was very taken by what 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 Philip said about the the strange English because that's obviously something that strikes you as a native English speaker that Japan is covered in English that makes absolutely no sense and I think that certainly Japan to someone that hasn't lived there for a long time strikes you as very foreign because its aesthetic is so different to almost anywhere else in the world I'd say Korea comes close but Whereas you you can go to another country such as France and Spain as an English person and feel like, yeah, I could just about understand this place because visually it looks quite similar. I'd say the the main thing about Japan is it it looks so different. So it reminds you that the culture is different. And I don't think Japan's culture is any more unique than any other country's culture. But what I do think is Japan is very good at reminding you that they're different, not only in the way that they communicate with you, but also in how the country looks. Philip, in your piece you mentioned, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce it right, but you mentioned this word Nihonjiron, am I saying that right? Nihonjiron, yeah. Nihonjiron, which is the study of Japanese things by the Japanese, and, and you sort of refer to this idea that even the Japanese are sort of still trying to work out their own culture. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, the great writer Donald Ritchie had a good quote about the Japanese. He said it, the, the Japanese people's relation to their own culture is like a fish fish's relationship to water. It's surrounded by it, but they don't know what it is. And there's a whole industry of, of studying Japanese, and it's, it has no end. I mean, studying kanji has no end. There's 50,000 kanji, so you never get to the end. So I think the Japanese enjoy the process of analysing themselves, and they don't expect to ever reach a kind of complete understanding, and perhaps they don't ever really want to, compl- to reach that end point. Uh, it's something pleasurable and satisfying about constantly thinking about why things are the way they are Uh, and I kind of admire that really. Ollie obviously uh, comedy is something very specific to each country and each individual country has different things that they find amusing. Tell us about Japanese comedy and, and also how your comedy was received in Japan. Well I can answer that question in a word which is badly 
I would say when, when Japan doesn't have stand-up comedy like we're used to in the West, they have styles which are similar. The, the main one is called manzai, which is a double act style of comedy where there's two people on stage and it's kind of a straight man, funny man kind of setup, and it, it is very typically men. There's there's an even worse gender imbalance in Japan than in, in the UK comedy scene. But I would say that the the Japanese approach to comedy is doesn't come from the same tradition that we have in America and in Europe, where comedy is not necessarily supposed to attack. And whereas in a British stand-up comedy audience, the audience is expected to do quite a lot of intellectual heavy lifting to work out what's really going on under the surface. That tradition hasn't quite seeped into to mainstream Japanese comedy yet. But that's not to say that Japan is not a very funny country. And there are lots of very funny people. And also, you know, just as an English speaker in Japan, as, as Philip has said, on a daily basis, you can just read things that are funny. I remember seeing an old lady which had the word whore on her socks. And I would love to know whether she knew that what that word meant. But I think both versions of the story, her knowing and her not knowing, are, are, are equally funny. One thing I would say is, as someone who has worked in the media industry in Japan, you often feel like you're a representative of the rest of the world. They won't ask you what things are like in Bristol, where I'm from, or even the UK, but what it's like in the West. And I feel there's a lot of pressure. And you can understand why, because the Japanese like being representatives of their own country. So they would expect other people to feel the same. Uh, and uh, I told a story in my Edinburgh show a couple of years ago, Pig in Japan, about how just before I was about to go on air on the radio, they asked me to explain how uh, I never saw a kite before I went to Japan because the producer had heard that kites were a Japanese invention. And uh, I was so flummoxed. I didn't know what to do about this. I just went along with it. And so for a proportion of the local radio listenership in Kyushu, I'm afraid to say they act under the <laughs> under the incorrect uh, impression that in the UK, we don't have kites. <laughs> Philip, just finally, people often say that there are sort of similarities between Britain and Japan and that we're both island nations off the coast of larger continents with all the kind of you know historical rivalries that exist. Do you think there's something in that? Do you think the kind of British and the Japanese are sort of equally eccentric and kind of kindred spirits in that respect? Absolutely, absolutely. I do. There's a lot of things in Japan which work in practice but not in theory. And I think the same can be said for many things. Uh, in the UK. Um, we're both constitutional monarchies. There's lots of things like that. And um, you try and defend logically and you can't, but nonetheless, they work. And that's really what I was trying to get at in the piece. You shouldn't be too quick to, to judge Japan and say this is weird and this is quirky and this is ridiculous, because it just takes a long time for the underlying logic of it to sort of manifest itself. I, I made that kind of change in my thinking about Japan after a few years, and I stopped being frustrated and I just started sort of wondering at things and imagining what the, the purpose could be and coming up with theories. I started to enjoy living in Japan a lot more when I, I changed my thinking like that. And Ollie, just, just to tie things up, tell us about your podcast series, Japan by River Cruise, because I think I'm right in saying you do a segment at the end about what the UK could sort of import from Japanese culture. Tell us about that. Yes, well, Japan by River Cruise, not only is it the, the primary source for uh, River Cruise news and information worldwide relating to Japan, but also we look at the light entertainment, we look at politics, and we look at current affairs in Japan. With actually the, the, this spirit that, that, that Philip has mentioned, which is, it's very easy, particularly as, as a long-term resident of Japan, to be critical and to ask, well, why, why aren't things going my way? And to, to make simple comparisons between your own country and Japan. 
But what we try and do is, is we try and adopt a, an approach which is to say, to say, well, let's take Japan as a totality, just as you would a person, all the good and all the flaws, and explore Japan and, and some of the stories which hit the headlines internationally, which tend to have a very one-track focus, a very simplistic lens through which Japan is viewed. Oh, people are like this because they're a repressed nation, or Japan's an island nation, therefore they've decided to do this. But actually, the the truth is always significantly more nuanced, and that's what we try to dig out in our podcast, and also report on river cruises. And that's everything on the edition this week. If you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on, then please do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you listen to. I'm Laura Prendergast, and I hope you have a brilliant weekend.